And in every culture uh, that with, there was a rite of passage, it was something that involved a direct challenge to the boy for a couple reasons. One, uh, to show him what he was made of. And we're going to talk about the virtues in a second, strength being the first one, right? modern consumer society has all these people, all these men surging with testosterone, but with no outlet, right? There's nothing that he needs. There's no, there's very few things. There's very few functions that are readily available to the boy who's surging with testosterone and has all the impulses that go with that, right? So if he doesn't go into video games, if he doesn't jerk off to porn all day, uh, what does he do? He has all this aggression and that comes out in weird ways because he's never grounded himself um, in emotional security or recognizing his func like the actual function of these impulses. When two guys can make fun of each other and they both can laugh, they're basically mutually submitting and saying, I'm willing to suffer for you, right? Like, obviously a joke at your expense isn't really suffering, suffering, but there is like an, like an ego check, right? When a guy makes a, a, a joke about someone else, he's like reminding him, hey, you're not high and mighty. Like, I'm not putting you ahead of uh, me. You better not put yourself ahead because if you don't take this joke well, it shows that you think you're better than us and that's not cool. The Ruando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit Ruando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, folks? Good morning here from Thailand. Uh, today we're going to speak about tribal virtues. I'm working off of last week's episode on the warrior archetype. I tried to save um, everything that has to do with male-to-male -male connection, bonding, interaction, for this episode. Last week, if you didn't catch it, I spoke about the warrior archetype from an individual level, from an internal perspective. But there's a lot to say about man-to-man -man bonding. Um, the book Iron John talks about this, uh, has spurred different branches of uh, thought when it comes to masculine development that I agree with and disagree with. Today's episode was largely inspired by um, Jack Donovan's The Way of Men. I'm not going to speak about his book too directly because we're going to hopefully have him on the podcast soon. Uh, in the next weeks or so. So I'm going to save uh, topics within his book for then. But it did inspire me to speak about the warrior archetype from a, a group level because in many other episodes we've spoken about dominance hierarchies and you know whether I've directly said it or not, a lot of the times what people think of is men in a group competing against each other. And that is something that happens typically. Uh, it's a natural instinct to compete against other men. But there's also an aspect of male bonding and I'm calling this episode, well, I don't know if I will uh, necessarily, but steel sharpening steel is uh, a concept that I like because uh, there's certain aspects of a man's development and character that can only come out in all male groups. Um, as you, I'm sure, have noticed, if you are a guy, uh, when there's only guys around, uh, guys act differently. Um, and so we're going to speak about the virtues that can only be developed around other men. We're going to speak about male-to-male uh, -male interaction from a cooperative perspective, which is not actually that different from the competitive, but obviously putting a more uh, constructive spin on things. We speak about rites of passage. And uh, last year, I wrote a post in the Masculine Underground group about how to start men's groups, um, especially during COVID now, uh, with uh, a lot of people uh, starving for social connection, um, I've, I've been recommending this even more to other guys about starting their own men's group or starting some sort of all-male social something. So I'm going to share my thoughts on that and what I find to be effective because I have a lot of criticisms to um, things that are called men's groups. Um, it might just be the hippie uh, social situations I find myself in, but they're like particularly unmasculine. That's a loud airplane. Okay. Um, so I'm going to speak about that. Uh, yeah, and uh, if you if you haven't catched this live, I know this is the last minute uh, thing in the Masculine Underground group. Feel free to comment, ask your questions. Um, but if you are listening to the recording or watching the recording on YouTube, on Facebook, or wherever recordings are, I this my this is gonna be my public service announcement for every episode forever. Uh, I highly suggest that you get off your screen, download the podcast version of this. The content's exactly the same. It's not like I have visuals up. So you can listen to this episode while going for a walk, while doing some exercise, while doing something with your hands, um, as opposed to sitting and looking at your phone or your computer. Um, other quick announcements. Um, later this week, uh, on Thursday, we have a great episode coming out with the BJJ Globetrotter, Christian Graugart. Um, Christian has a uh, company or community of people who travel the world doing jujitsu. 
And other than uh, just liking travel and jujitsu, I really appreciate his kind of Taoist philosophy, uh, bringing certain warrior nature to like a Zen-like uh, perspective. So he's a real cool guy. That episode comes out on Thursday. Next week, I'm going to talk about the lover archetype. I wasn't really planning on going through uh, Moore and Gillette's uh, King Warrior Magician Lover, but I felt called to speak about the king archetype and the father nature a few months ago. And then last week was the warrior. Uh, might as well go into the lover and magician at some point. Um, so we're going to speak about that next week. And actually, this episode is kind of a, a gap bridge between the individualist, uh, self, selfish, and not necessarily a bad way, but self-driven, uh, go out into the world and seek adventure part of male nature, which is the warrior archetype, and the lover archetype, which is connecting with the feminine, whether internally or externally. This is kind of a bridge because before you can really be complete in the world of being a lover, uh, actually, I, I won't say before, but it's uh, to be a complete fully expressed individuated men, you do need to access both your masculine and feminine side. The lover, uh, the feminine side we're going to say for next week, but there's more to say on this. So um, we'll start off with a quote uh, from one of my favorite films that I reference all the time. I mean, it's really when it comes to male mythologies, uh, I mean, Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote Fight Club, said this. I mean, there's only a couple things uh, for men to look at. Like, women have tons of mythologies in, in contemporary uh, fiction, right? They have the traveling sisterhood yaya pants thing and like there's like something that always comes out joy luck club whatever there's only a few things uh, for men there's uh there's fight club and i'm actually blanking on the other thing that um chuck mentioned but there's really not a lot of male mythologies actually my book which will come out eventually i'm hoping can fill in that gap especially for our generation but from fight club tyler durden says while he's in the bathtub we're a generation of men raised by women, and I'm wondering if another woman is really what we need. Fight Club hits on so many themes of the modern generation of men so acutely with like its analysis of consumerism and a lot of things. I'm not going to retell all of Fight Club, but this line kind of represents what also the book Iron John, which kind of spurred the men's rights movement in some ways, um, speaks about, which is... Uh, Recent generations of men, I'd say specifically from the advent of second wave feminism, certainly um, young men who were boys during the uh, rise of third wave feminism have created this like kind of attachment uh, to the feminine. And you see a lot of guys who grew up who are basically afraid of their own masculinity. I think this is truer now more than ever. I mean, it's not even, it's barely an opinion of mine. It's like pretty close to fact. Um, and because of that, there's like new kinds of insecurities, whereas like historically, uh, maybe men were too high, too masculine in some ways, or some guys were like, uh, in a, like destructively expressing their masculine edge. Um, and you can look at all the all the things that come from masculinity that are negative. We spoke about some of those in the warrior archetype. Like obviously, violence is a masculine ver is a masculine expression. It's not always a good thing. In fact, most of the time, violence is probably not a good thing. Um, but then nowadays, there's a lot of guys who are afraid of their edge, and um, there's certain issues, uh, certain virtues that guys can only access around other men. Um, as society has muted masculinity, a lot of boys are, are kind of attached to women. You see, like I spoke about this more in the mother complex episode, but so many adult guys have this like unhealthy attachment to either their literal mother or their concept of mother, and you can see this when guys turn their girlfriends into like a mother person. Like I hear this from my female friends all the time, like my boyfriend treats me like his mother. And like part of that is on the woman, right? A part of it, I think, I won't even, I won't get on to a whole rant on feminism, but uh, part of it is that, uh, you know, in a situation where a, a girlfriend is, feels like the mother of her boyfriend, of course, there's some aspect of uh, her acting like a mother, right? Um, it's like kind of misplaced nurturing. But at the same time, if that's, that dynamic exists, if you're in that dynamic, you have to recognize where am I acting like a child? Where am I relying on, the woman I'm sleeping with for emotional support or things that I should and can either give myself or get from other men or get out in the world where I don't have to uh, have this interaction with the feminine, whether it's in mother or a girlfriend form, in a way that I'm, I'm using that to fill in the gaps of my self-esteem. The warrior archetype is the phase of development in the male psyche that should start during adolescence, like when, when our balls drop in and testosterone starts surging through our bodies, all of the impulses that teenage boys have to like 
to do, do hard things, to be competitive, to go to explore the world. A lot of these impulses are kind of channeled into video games because that's what's available to most guys, or porn and video games, basically. Um, but that those impulses are pure. Those impulses are your, your, we've evolved for thousands of generations to have those impulses, to send us on journeys, to do risky things that maybe will end up killing us. But if they don't, uh, it'll give us the, the true emotional security to then be a leader, be a father, be a lover, be whatever. I talked about that last week, so I'm not going to repeat that. Um, but this this is a loss of ma um, natural virtue, and uh, even though there there is an independent aspect of the warrior archetype, especially when the boy f actually becomes a man and picks up the sword or the axe or the hammer and goes out into the wild and does that, there is a transitional phase where uh, the preteen or the young adolescent uh, is taken from his family. Or, or actually, I spoke about this. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just run through this. So. Um, the, the traditional rites of passage, and this is described in Iron John, um, which is a famous book if you haven't heard from it. Um, actually, someone just mentioning in the comments, Robert Bly uh, referred to invisible substances. That invisible substance gets transmitted between men as we gather and get real between men and boys. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a mystical lens that is in our bone marrow. I don't, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that, um, but uh, so when in, in, in tr traditional, essentially pre-agricultural societies from which we've all come uh, ancestrally, uh, when most children, I mean, children are, pr prior to puberty, they're basically, uh, you can treat them as asexual. They're just kids. Uh, they spend their time in the land of women. Uh, they get all their nurturing from women. If you're a, a boy prior to puberty, I mean, he's not that different from a girl in terms of uh, his relationship to men and women. Like, he's just a kid, right? In the land of women, traditionally, uh, you know, back when uh, biology necessitated our gender roles, or rather the other way around, um, uh, boys were around, in, it were around women. They got their, their nurturing from there. They were uh, dependent on their mothers. Um, Prior to puberty or around the time of puberty, they got abducted essentially by men. I mean, obviously, the traditions in different cultures were a little different, but they were taken um, from their, the world of women into the world of men and put through some hardship. That was the rite of passage. And in every culture uh, that there was a rite of passage, it was something that involved a direct challenge to the boy for a couple reasons. One, uh, to show him what he was made of. And we're going to talk about the virtues in a second. Strength being the first one, right? He needs to know that he has the ability to, to take on take on shit, whether it's nature, whether it's killing an animal, whether it's challenges with other men. I mean, there's different uh, Native American, um, I mean, the, the Native American vision quests, obviously there's many different versions of that. Putting him out into nature without food, without water, maybe uh, attached to a tree or, or piercing through his body, something that puts him through pain where he has to dig deep and recognize that um, he has some abilities that maybe he didn't realize he had when he was a boy. The second piece of that is uh, kind of like if you, if you caught the uh, episode on, on const social constructions of reality, there's a negative aspect to it. But traditionally, you know, a, a young human who's surging with testosterone and he has muscles for the first time, he has aggression for the first time. If he's not aligned with the collective, he can do some bad stuff. And this is kind of like, I mean, I hate the term toxic masculinity, but this is the... This is where this comes from, right? Modern consumer society has all these people, all these men surging with testosterone, but with no outlet, right? There's nothing that he needs. There's no, there's very few things. There's very few functions that are readily available to the boy who's surging with testosterone and has all the impulses that go with that, right? So if he doesn't go into video games, if he doesn't jerk off to porn all day, uh, what does he do? He has all this aggression and that comes out in weird ways because he's never grounded himself um, in emotional security or recognizing his func like the actual function of these impulses. So anyway, uh, the young man now recognizing his strength um, has to go through a hardship, usually something that is humiliating or um, humbling. I mean, humbling and humiliating literally mean the same thing, even though they have different connotations, because then the boy recognizes, okay, I have this immense strength but I'm still powerless, I mean, powerless in a sense without my collective. Like there's a reason why I need to commit myself to the tribe. So the boy uh, comes back from the rite of passage as a man and he recognizes, okay, I'm really powerful, but my best use of this power, the most fulfilling expression of this power is to do things that benefit my society, which back then was usually a tribe of 50 to 150 people. Um, a lot of things kind of break down in, in our modern tribes that are, hundreds of millions of people because, uh, yeah, we can't uh, handle that many relationships. Dunbar's number. So I just want to, I want to peel back for a second. I got excited and I jumped ahead. 
Um, so I do want to speak about, uh, first I want to speak about the, um, I'll continue on this with the, uh, the origins of why these are uh, specific to men. I do want to speak about masculine virtues. This is somewhat referencing Jack Donovan's book. Um, I li really like the way he laid it out. Um, and then third, I'm going to end with um, my take on how men's groups should be formed um, because I'm very frustrated with a lot of things that are called men's groups. Um, I want to speak a little bit about my own experience with this because if you've listened to this podcast, you know that like I grew up with a lot of um, insecurity around my masculinity, mainly because I was really shy and I just thought you know that made me less of a, a man or less useful. Um, as a person, and I did a lot of hyper-masculine things growing up, like, and naturally I think I was drawn to that. It wasn't like I was always, it's not like I got into boxing and wrestling just to prove myself, although there was an aspect to that. I had this impulse, maybe maybe driven by my insecurity, or because in regular social situations I just felt like I couldn't keep up with people who were louder or more confident or had more bravado. Um, but I've always been into like fighting for some reason, like that's always been like an interest of mine, whether it's like military battle tactics or combat sports or whatever. Um, but like, a lot of things were driven by my insecurity and a lot of times I would throw myself into these uh, hyper-masculine environments, whether like rugby teams or like uh, the Marines, I went through officer candidate school and I, uh, I always felt even, even worse. Like I, I felt like I didn't know how to interact with guys who were really potent or really strong. Um, and part of my, my journey has been connecting with my feminine side, I think, and I'll save that till next week on the, the, war, the lover archetype. But a lot of me developing real grounded confidence came from also recognizing that I had uh, certain um, unexpressed aspects to my oxytocin driven side. But to be honest, I didn't really feel, I still felt like this insecurity and like um, to, to, to admit, for a while after I after I became uh, really competent and confident in connecting with women, for a while, I mean, in my mid twenties or so, I spent I spent almost all of my time around women. Why? Because it, I just felt that okay, I can really empathize. Uh, girls really like me. Obviously, sexual validation is a huge boost to the ego and all that stuff. And then I would always feel a little uncomfortable around really masculine guys because it exposed to me something. It exposed to me that there was uh, there were areas that I wasn't adequate, right? With women, I felt super adequate. With men, I was like, ah, I don't feel, I don't feel so great. But even that started nagging me because um, it's like maybe two, well, I guess three years ago now, I started traveling Asia. I spent a bunch of time in Bali and it's, uh, I just want to speak about this a little bit. Uh, so Ubud, Bali is an interesting uh, place. It's where uh, the the book and movie Eat, Pray, Love takes part, uh, or at least the love part of Eat, Pray, Love um, takes place. So a lot of people since that book has come out have moved to Bali to find themselves, especially women, uh, older divorced women, younger college age women, and everything in between go there to like find themselves and do yoga and eat vegan food. So I showed up there for the first time in 2018, early 2018, and uh, I was shocked. I mean, there's, there's like, it's like a five to one woman to guy, uh, man ratio. It's like something crazy like that. And then a lot of the guys there are gay because I mean, it's very, it's like a very feminine environment. It's like vegan, uh, hippie, yoga everywhere. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Cause like, not only are there a ton of women and very few men, very little competition, right? Um, it, I mean, all, all the women are doing yoga all the time. They're super healthy and they're super thirsty, right? It's the only place in the world I've been to um, where I'll walk into a cafe, uh, not dressed like anything in particular, and then all the women stare, stare at you. And like, it's not, nothing special about me. Like a lot of guys have this experience when they walk into like, cause, because there's so many women and so few men. And over there in an environment like that, the bar for masculinity is so low, right? Like if you can just make eye contact and keep your back straight and like keep your wrists straight, like you're already more masculine than a lot of guys there. And I don't say that, well, whatever, I say that the way I say it. Um, so at first I was like, I can't believe this is like such a such a great kept secret. Like I, I don't want to tell anyone because like all these bros are going to come here and like, you know, uh, it's going to ruin the ratio. And I was wondering like, how is it that there's so many women here, so many attractive women here, so many like eager women here and like it's not flooded with guys, right? Because like anywhere else I've been like um, New York or anywhere else, like if there's a place with a lot of attractive women, a lot of men show up, right? Naturally. But then I realized after a few months that it's because the environment was so feminine 
that if you're a masculine person, you just feel uncomfortable. Like there's something that doesn't feel right. Cause I was there for a couple months and it was amazing. And then I started to feel like, I feel like I'm losing a part of myself. Like a part of me is atrophying. Like I end up growing my hair long, which I don't, I mean mine, but like I started like acting a little bit more feminine than I felt was good. And I just like, I had to be around some guys. So I became like obsessive about weightlifting during this time. Like there's something, it was just like, I felt like I was being sucked up into avoid a, a like a, a void of yin and it was like it was like draining what was authentic in me um so i think that's why it's funny like in this hyper feminine environment it's it's kind of protected itself from masculinity because like anyone who's masculine just doesn't feel good being there i referenced that in my cult episode too even if you're a guy who seeks the feminine because you feel more secure uh there's something that's, that's lost or something that's missing. I know a lot of guys who are like great with women. Maybe, maybe they like did a lot of pickup stuff or whatever. And like they can really take advantage of attachment theory by acting avoidant and getting anxious women to like them and like becomes a very easy thing. But they still are shy away from men and they, they always have that insecurity. And it usually shows up in like their purpose and their ability to follow through on things and commitment. And that's, um, and then anyway, this is important. Uh, I just want to tell one more story because I, I this is true even down to the extinctual level because I think, you know, when we speak about masculinity, a lot of people are like, oh, well, your ideas, your constructs, blah, 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 culture. I will say one more thing. So um, one of my like really close friends, a female friend, childhood friend, uh, she has a nephew. Oh, she had, I mean, this nephew's probably, I don't know. But at this time, this was maybe a few years ago, uh, it was like a two-year-old boy. Um, her cousin uh, was raising it, single mom, and this boy I grew up in a very uh, matriarchal environment. It's growing up in a matriarchal environment. It's like uh, he was only like the father was out of the picture, so he's only really spent time around women. And it's a two-year-old boy, or maybe maybe even it was one and a half because he wasn't speaking yet. I remember uh, my friend invited me to a party and like uh, or like a get together. It was like her cousins, all 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 women, right? I was the only guy. I show up like halfway through. And uh, her li- uh, the little the little boy who's maybe one and a half is just like dancing around, being cute, getting all this like oohs and ahs and cuteness and, and all this validation. Even though he can't even speak, he's getting all this validation from these uh, these uh, these women, right? He, instinctually, he knew that like he was just loved and he was comfortable and he was just being cute in the way that children know how to be cute. And I walk in and I wasn't I wasn't you know I wasn't saying anything and he's just dancing around and he's laughing and he's playing and everyone's like you know going on whatever and then he turns around he sees me and immediately goes like this right this is a little kid like, he doesn't know anything I mean all he could tell on some level that was I was different than everyone else like I was a male human right and immediately he straightened up and he sat down and he just sat and he was nervous and I didn't mean to make him nervous right. But it shows you like even like down to like a child level, like a, a pre-toddler even, uh, there's something where he knew that he was not going to get the same type of giggly, googly, uh, nonstop validation for me, right? At, at one look, at one glance, he could sense it, right? Not because I'm a mean person. I mean, I love kids, but like you, you don't get this uh, automatic validation for men. And this is an important part because... I mean, I don't know the kid, right? I don't know how he grows up, but someone who only grows up around women, who's used to getting that nonstop validation, and this is like, you know, one of the roots of the mother complex, will not feel secure around men because he knows that men are going to challenge him. Uh, Men aren't going to give him validation just because he's the opposite sex. There's something like, and I think this ties into participation trophy culture, where, you know, if you grew up getting validation from not accomplishing stuff or not winning, it, it leaves this void in your heart, right? Even if it feels good to get a, a, a fake trophy, it's like it leaves this void where like you're not sure if when the shit really hits the fan, can you really handle stuff? Because I don't I didn't really earn that trophy. Like I didn't really earn the validation. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I got the validation from women, whether it's my mother or wh- whomever, just for being me, which is nice. You know, it's nice to like know that you're you're worth something just for being you. We'll talk about that in the, the lover archetype, and we spoke about the anima next uh, week. But there has to be some like there, there's certain virtues that you can only trust in yourself if you actually earn them. This is why competition is so critical, and putting yourself into hard things are so critical. So, men naturally act differently around men because. Uh, we, we, of course, we interact differently. Like we are, we are the same uh, as opposed to uh, there's certain things in women that you can appreciate just because they're women. There's something that's not natural to you. Um, so, so one thing in, in how uh, men interact and how men bond is like we give each other checks naturally. Women uh, show, um, offer friendship or, or offer connection 
by immediately validating each other, right? Like if you see two women and they want to be friends, what do they say? Like, oh, I love your shirt. Like, where'd you get it? Blah, blah, blah. Like, that's like the subcommunication of, I think you're great. I want to be friends. I'm not a threat to you. I'm not going to try to steal your man. I'm not going to try to undermine you or um, kick you out or, or uh, ostracize you from the social hierarchy. Like that's when a woman says, oh, I love your blah, blah, blah. I love your hair. That's her way of saying it, right? That's why it's so critical when women meet each other. If they actually want to be friends, they say that. If they don't, if they don't say something like that, they, they have to close up. They have to guard themselves. This guy going to steal my boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. Men are a little different, right? Men, uh, show these uh, signs of respect um, by validating each other's strength. So on the surface level, it might be like um, some sort of like uh, interest, right? You show interest in a person. I guess this is true for it, for you know, any sort of, sort of gender. Um, but there's something that is um, to really uh, show respect to each other. You give some sort of challenge or check and is often in the, in the form of humor. But I want to, before we get into the virtues and stuff. So one thing with millennial guys that uh, Dr. Robert Glover mentioned when he was on the show a few months ago, or I guess it was over a year ago, is that a lot of people rag on millennial men and, and, and you know, this, uh, the millennials and younger, right? Like, and, and women even say this, right? Like, younger guys have lost certain uh, uh, bits of their edge, right? This is the, we're, we are the least masculine generation ever, uh, at least before, you know, as far as uh, this era, or I mean, certainly probably throughout history. Um, but... Uh, Dr. Glover did mention that we are the most empathic, right? Uh, millennial guys and younger seem to be the most emotionally aware. Um, they seem to dress better than uh, previous generations. Like they're in touch with their feminine side. They're in touch with oxytocin. They, they may, maybe we've grown up with more oxytocin receptors because of uh, cat photos on Instagram and, and more likely uh, feminism and how culture has shifted to reward more feminine virtues, which is why uh, young guys are more emotionally aware. I hear this a lot from my... Um, female friends who are like in their 30s or early 40s who, who've dated uh, both generations that are like millennial guys and younger will say, can I kiss you? And it's so gross. I've heard this, like I have a, a friend who's 40 who's dated younger and older and she's like, she can't believe that someone would ask, can I kiss you? Whereas if you've grown up during the Me Too movement, that's actually not a bad move, right? Like for a 20 year old guy or a 20 year old woman, that might be almost expected. I mean, I don't know. I'm in between these ages. Um, but there has been a shift. And I think, you know, with consumerist infantilization of people, um, this whole idea of like being uh, expecting uh, validation or softness or like being super emotionally aware is not enough. I mean, the empathy part is not bad, but this uh, this uh, over infantilization certainly is, is not healthy. So one way that people and the reason why this is missing and you, know, you can look at fatherless homes or uh, shaming of masculine all-male environments like you know everyone wants to make fun of fraternities and like these kinds of groups um but they are critical for developing male self-esteem uh so actually so i wanted to, when we talk about male bonding one of like the the highest levels like the opposite of um hey i love your sweater between women is making fun of each other right and you can see this in throughout various ways like Guys, when they're close, they make fun of each other. Um, you can see this in Gran Torino, uh, the Clint Eastwood movie. Like he's, uh, Clint Eastwood takes the, the young uh, Hmong kid under his wing. He's trying to show him how to be a man, and he shows uh, him how him and his buddies like, uh, make fun of each other. And <laughs> um, it's fun. If you haven't seen the movie, it's a great movie. But um, So he's trying to teach the young kid of how to make fun of other guys, because that's how men bond. So the kid uh, comes in and says something like really derogatory uh, to Clint Eastwood's friend, and then they were just like, well, you can't say that. Which, I mean, it's humorous, but it shows that, because what, what it is when two guys make fun of each other, it's kind of like um, puppies play fighting. If you've ever seen two puppies fight, uh, playing, what they're really doing is pretending to kill each other, right? Like they, they might be wagging their tails and, and jumping on each other, but what are they doing? They're trying to put their neck, their, their mouth on each other's neck. Like they are practicing, play is a practice for um, competitive life skills, right? And any kind of play, like if you look at sports, all of these things like, develop both the, the mental skills and the physical skills to conquer an opponent. Uh, so, but so when 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 two guys make fun of each other, it's uh, it's a sign of male bonding because essentially what you're doing is one, you're demonstrating courage um, that like I'm willing to like dig into you, right? Like I'm not afraid of you. I, I'm showing that I'm willing. And then when the person accepts it, when the person laughs and then sends it back, it's almost like uh, it's like bending the knee. It's like it's showing mutual submission, which is critical when we talk about two people. If you look at like where all of our testosterone-driven virtues. Uh, come from or their functions in, in violence or strength or whatever. 
when two guys can make fun of each other and they both can laugh, they're basically mutually submitting and saying, I'm willing to suffer for you, right? Like, obviously, a joke at your expense isn't really suffering, suffering, but there is like an, like an ego check, right? When a guy makes a, a joke about someone else, he's like reminding him, hey, you're not high and mighty. Like, I'm not putting you ahead of uh, me. You better not put yourself ahead because if you don't take this joke well, it shows that you think you're better than us and that's not cool, right? There's like a, it's like a, a it's a, Whereas like maybe the feminine bonding is like about boosting each other up, but masculine bonding is about making sure we stay at the same level or right? not, not going high and mighty, which maybe se seems like a negative thing. I think a lot of people see this as toxic masculinity, but this is critical, right? Like if you don't have those checks, you don't know, like, you don't know where your ceiling is. You don't, you don't have an opportunity to prove yourself and you have all this like bolstered up fake self-esteem that you see a lot um, since the participation trophy culture became a thing. But it's also, it goes down to a critical piece of like actual development of character. And the reason why, you know, all certain virtues are considered masculine is that when you, when you uh, laugh at, when someone makes fun of you and you make fun of them and you both can laugh at it, you're saying, I'm willing to suffer for you, which is um, when we go back to those rites of passage of like, it's not enough to just show a boy that he's strong, it's to show him that he needs to use his strength for the benefit of other people. When you're willing to laugh at each other, you're basically saying, I'm willing to do hard things on your behalf too, right? I'm, it's, it's showing that you're not just using your potency for yourself. And this, this is where like all of male, man-to-man -man respect comes from is, can I trust you to hold down the fort for us, right? I mean, uh, I, mean I'll, I do love uh, Jack Donovan's um, concept, or at least what he talks about in his book, Way of Men, about uh, all of male virtues are there to protect the perimeter. Like we think of our pre-agricultural uh, ancestors, you know, uh, women obviously get pregnant, not saying that they have to or whatever. I mean, obviously a lot has changed in modern society, but back then, you know, our our functions in a, in a tribe largely came down to our biology. Women back then, there's no contraceptives, so they were probably pregnant half the time or, or with small children, breastfeeding a lot of the time. So what do the men do? Like the men, uh, we've evolved to be sexually dimorphic, dimorphic because men don't get pregnant. They might as well have more muscle and protect the perimeter, right? When the women and children are vulnerable, someone has to protect the perimeter of, you know, from invaders, from predators, from the, the, from the weather, blah, blah, blah. So all the things that men inherently instinctively um, respecting each other come down to can I trust you to protect the perimeter protect the perimeter and 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 you know being able to laugh at each other is one of these things I kind of just like a for random tangent I'm, I'm reading this book uh, that I'm eventually gonna do a podcast episode on called Liber Null it's a Western occult uh, book I'm actually trying to get the the um, author uh, Peter Carroll on the podcast he's the uh, first proponent of what is known as chaos magic. Very different topic, but um, in, in the book, he, he speaks about certain principles that uh, tie in a lot to like the Jungian uh, psychology stuff that we often speak about. But he was speaking about like uh, different emotions and their functions and how pretty much every emotion has an opposite, like fear and desire, love and hate. Um, laughter is the only emotion that is its own opposite. Like laughter is a, is a, is the highest uh, experience of emotion because it's like there's nothing anyway i'll leave it at that like laughter is uh is is its own opposite it's the highest uh, emotion of like actually seeing the entire field and accepting and approving of it and getting off on it to use other language all right so the three virtues i want to speak about is our um when it comes to male to male respect our strength or competency uh courage and honor speaking about courage first i have this out of order on my page but uh, courage is, is the willingness to enter tension, period, right? Like we spoke about that a lot in the warrior archetype. Like one way to activate that in yourself is to initiate tension, right? It's not enough to just show up to the battlefield and wait for the uh, enemy to come to you. It's like, can you, can you enter that? And this shows up a lot in life, like whether it's saying the hard thing, confronting the person you have a hard time with, or telling the woman that you're into that you're into her, like all of these initiations, or like I, I use the sexual example, right? Like a lot of guys, uh, if they're passive in sexuality or hesitant, it actually depresses their neuroendocrine system. Like they actually, they might, they're, what would become testosterone might actually turn into cortisol and they become more and more stressed and then they have an issue getting it up later because they've actually, uh, through the behavior of not initiating, they've allowed their nervous system to depress and go into prey mode. Um, I spoke about that extensively last week, but this courage matters between men because the first thing is willingness, right? Like if, if, uh, 
if there's a zombie apocalypse, if there's if barbarians come over the hill, if it starts snowing and we have to build something to to keep our children from freezing to death or go hunting, like can I count on you to throw the spear or swing the hammer when the time comes? Um, which is why when guys uh, sh- shy away from tension, and this can be seen in like the simple experience of guys making fun of each other, if you shy away from it, if you get butt hurt because someone teased you about something you did, um, it, it shows like, okay, I can't respect you or I can't, you know, I can't trust you to hold things down because even from a little bit of discomfort, you, you, you fall away. That's where courage, uh, that's why courage matters so much and why, especially between men, you, you inherently lose respect for someone who shies away from hard things. Or, or things that are uncomfortable, right? And we have so much respect for people. Because like, if you look at the movie, I mentioned this last week, but if you look at the movies that typically make guys cry, I don't know if Rudy is a popular movie anymore. I mean, I know it came out like over 20 years ago, but you know, Rudy or like any of these, uh, or there are 300, like movies where guys try and fail. It's not even about the winning, right? 300, obviously they all die, right? They die, they die for a cause. And Rudy, the kid wants to be a linebacker for Notre Dame. He never really makes the team, but he gets that one sack at the end. Like it makes everyone, I mean, it makes guys ball. Why? Because you can see like he, you know, he suffered and he suffered and he suffered, but he was still brave enough to keep doing the thing. And that, and, you know, and we, we inherently have respect for people like that. The next piece, it's not just uh, enough to have the willingness. It's like, can you actually do it, right? Like it's great if someone's uh, willing to pick up an axe and run into battle, but if he's too weak to even lift it, well, that's also useless. So inherently we all, I mean, this goes across the board, men, women, whatever, we respect uh, competency. I mean, specifically in men, right? It's one of the more attractive traits. Um, this is why uh, Omer Pani spoke about this when he was on the podcast uh, at one of his appearances. Like before, uh, before dating skills were discussed, before like leadership became like this complex thing, like in the early 1900s, leadership training was synonymous with public speaking training. Like, or even back in like ancient Greece or even in many other societies, oratory was one of the things that was respected as like one of the primary masculine skills. Why? Because uh, it showed competency, right? If you were eloquent enough to string words together and make arguments, people could uh, trust you to lead a group in battle or to organize the field, right? Because uh, uh, be, being able to protect and provide doesn't just come down to whether or not you're strong enough to swing a weapon. It's uh, actually, when it comes to humans, a greater skill is can you organize a bunch of people to swing their weapons together? Like that's actually a, a, a more useful skill. Um, and that's why on sports teams, the best athlete is always the captain, which is something I've always wondered about because like uh, when it comes to like, it's like you know, any sports team, uh, just being good at the sport doesn't mean you're the best leader, right? Like some people are terrible at giving instruction. In fact, very often the naturally gifted athlete is terrible at guiding other people because like he naturally is good. Like how can he teach the other kid? But we, we still need the leader to be really good at the sport because um, how can we trust him? Like he can say all these perfect things, but like if he can't do it himself, I mean, sometimes just being able to sink the, sink the shot yourself is enough of inspiration to everyone else. And then finally, uh, the third virtue is honor, right? This idea of honor, and I was tempted to go say honor, courage, commitment, as is the Marine Corps motto. Um, I mean, we're keeping it at uh, courage, strength, or competency, and honor. Um, honor is such a critical uh, virtue for men because when it comes to potency, right, going back to this rite of passage idea of like, all of these young men now have testosterone surging through them. They, they have the potency to create or destroy uh, honor is where guys can trust, okay, when my back is turned, are you actually going to uh, be with the tribe, right? When my back is turned, can I trust you to not uh, sleep with my wife or, uh, you know, not abduct or like steal my, steal my crops or steal my sheep? Like this idea of honor is so critical. Honor on many levels, like can I, honor essentially is like a person is honorable if we can trust them to do what they say they're going to do. Whether it's like actually do the hard things, like, you know, I mean, a lot of times uh, when we speak of honor culture sociologically, very often we're talking about like, will a guy back defend his name? And I won't, I won't go too deep into this, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it was featured in Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink, where they're speaking about how in the American South, there's this deep honor culture, right? Like in the American South, traditionally, if a man um, insulted your wife and you shot him, you would not be convicted, right? Because in, in the American South, which was, uh, according to most theories, the reason why there's honor culture in the American South, partly because of the Wild West, because without the, without, um, without the law to uphold justice for you, you need to uphold your own justice. But a lot of the roots are from the, um, the people who settled, the Americans, eventual Americans who settled the American South, 
came from uh, Northern Europe in the Highlands where everyone was, uh, where most people's sustenance came from um, uh, raising cattle or raising animals. And animals are really easy to steal. Like uh, wheat, like, it's very hard to steal someone's entire wheat uh, crops, but it's very easy to steal someone's horses or steal someone's sheep or steal someone's lamb. And if someone did that, and you didn't go after them and kill them, then everyone would know, oh, we can steal the rest of his lamb. Like you needed to have a reputation of violence for anyone to respect you, uh, for people to not steal from you, and for your family to live on, which is why honor culture, or honor became such a, honor in the, in the defending your name sense became, um, you know, naturally evolved into becoming a, a dominant strategy sociologically. But there's also honor in just keeping your word um, back to like, um, Pre-agriculture pre again, tribal leadership, before civilization was able to evolve in a way that they were able to have standing armies and kings were able to have uh, people do violence on their behalf uh, to keep everyone in line, before tyranny was possible. Back in like these small groups of like 50 to 100 people, tyranny wasn't really possible like in, in those situations. And I think this is why, you know, right wing politics kind of glorifies this because they kind of go back to small unit leadership, they go, uh, most right wing, everything believes in like independent governance as opposed to centralized govern governance. The reason is because um, in these small tribes, naturally the, go the, the government was afraid of the people, right? Like it wasn't like a thing that you had to uphold with the second amendment. Like that was like, you know, if there's only 25 guys in a small tribe, the biggest and baddest might rise to leadership, but if he's an asshole to everyone, if, if people can't trust him, if like he always goes back on his word, if he never follows through, if he's selfish, if he, if he does anything that isn't, um, doesn't give him a sense of honor, everyone else is just gonna gang up on him and take, take, you know, and kill him, right? Like in a small group, naturally the, the leader is afraid of the people in the sense of like the leader has to uphold certain values, which is why, I mean, and, and back then like, uh, you know, the leader would be expected to mediate conflict, right? Between two guys, there, there's a dispute over food, over something. Um, they would go to the leader who would mediate. If they didn't trust that he keeps his word, if they didn't trust that he was honorable, one or both parties wouldn't want to uh, go to him. So like for, any, for anyone to be king in a, or chief in a small tribe, he had to have the respect of everyone, both with his courage, his willingness to do hard things, his strength or competency, his ability to do hard things, but also was he honorable enough that we can trust his judgment, right? Because if they can't trust his judgment in a small group, there's no army, right? Everyone is the army. So they would just be like, no, I'm not going to do that. There's no police force. Everyone is the police force. It was like, well, if, if I don't trust you, if I don't trust your code, I'm just not going to follow you. And then society breaks down, which is why these ideas of chivalry were so critical um, pre-agriculturally. And even though, even though in modern society we have a standing police force, none of us are directly in contact with our leader. Like no Americans, very few American citizens actually communicate with the president or president-elect. Like there's this anonymity which allows for tyranny and allows for oppression because we're not, our brains aren't meant to organize in these uh, in these uh, groups this big. Our emotions still fall on us. So like I spoke about this last week, a lot of things that, uh, a lot of masculine or testosterone-driven virtues that we've evolved to have honestly are somewhat obsolete in the first world 21st century uh, life, right? Unless you're in the armed forces, unless you're in the police force, unless you're in a gang where you're actually fighting over territory, whether that's the right thing to do or not, like unless you're in a situation like that, you don't really need to demonstrate um, strength, courage, and honor on a regular basis, but our emotions still run on these. You can, you can call them outdated or, uh, you know, obsolete, um, circuits, if you will, but our emotions still run on that, right? This is why these kinds of things still get us emotional when we watch movies. These are why this is what causes respect between people, whether or not they're necessary traits. Anyway, I want to say one thing. I forgot to make this note. Um, not, not saying this is the right thing, but if you, I don't actually don't know if it's true anymore uh, with modern culture, but when I was a kid, you know, 20 years ago, uh, between guy, between boys, the accusation of being gay was like the worst thing, right? Like, a lot of boys, I mean, don't even, or when they first uh, learn, or even before they know what the word means, right? They, they throw this word around. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. Certainly uh, want to accept uh, people of all orientations and, and whatnot. But the, the reason why this is chosen as an insult instinctively for many boys is that uh, it has nothing to do with homosexuality. And in my opinion, it's just like there's this concept, this instinctive concept of these virtues, these masculine virtues of strength, courage, and honor. And like something about like throwing someone into a category of non-man, which I think is what 
little like boys who are trying to just insult each other do. Uh, you know, not really thinking about it, obviously lacking compassion in many ways, but they're just throwing this out because like that kind of accusation is one of, it's like, it's like the, the worst challenge on an instinctive level. Um, and, uh, you know, um, Jack Donovan speaks about this in his book. Uh, Jack Donovan's actually a homosexual guy. He doesn't use the word gay because he feels that as far as I understand from his writing, um, gay culture kind of, uh, overrid homosexual culture like not everything not every homosexual is part of gay culture i'm gonna let him speak about it when he's on the podcast but i didn't really think about that i never thought about it before being a straight guy but i thought like oh yeah like there are certain uh, memes that everyone assumes is part of uh part of homosexual culture i I don't mean to comment on this necessarily but like the whole idea behind like the limp-wristedness like when someone speaks in a certain voice that we consider to be a gay voice or shows limp-wristedness they are self-identifying in a way. Like they're, they may, I've, I've asked uh, gay friends, like, what is the thing? What is the deal with like gay flamboyancy? Like, why is this like kind of a thing that so many guys who sleep with guys have? Like, this mode of behavior seems like such a specific way of being. And uh, gay, gay guys, I know, gay friends have said like, oh, well, it is a way of like identifying each other. And like, most guys turn up the flamboyancy when they're in a game bar or like a gay gym or something. But then I read Jack Donovan's interpretation, which I understood of like, specifically like, let's say limp-wristedness. Like why, why, what, what is the deal with like making your wrist like this that, that kind of shows that you're, you're, you behave a certain way, you have certain sexual proclivities. And uh, my understanding of like, what Jack Donovan was saying is like, well, think about it. Like if you're showing a lift, limp wrist, you're kind of demonstrating that you're not good at swinging a sword, right? So you're kind of letting everyone know like that that's not the role I'm going to play in our tribe. Right. Whether, you know, whatever your opinions are on it, like, you know, I'm not a, certainly I want people to be however they are. But as far as like the roles, the, the necessary roles, I don't mean like culturally imposed roles, but like the the actual functions that testosterone driven behavior leads to for the tribe virtue. I, it usually has to do with swinging tools and like doing hard things with other opposing forces. If you are demonstrating that uh, you're not good at holding tools, you're letting everyone know, like, hey, I might look like a guy, but this is not the function I'm choosing to play in society. I have a different function. Like that's my understanding of it now. I'm curious to speak about uh, it with, uh, with Jack himself. So anyway, I want to end with, um, with my take on men's groups. Um, is there anything else I want to, oh, I want to say one more thing on ethos. So <clears throat> as you uh, maybe know, like there's the three categories of, we spoke about oratory a second ago, the three categories of making arguments of, of convincing someone as, uh, as, uh, theorized by ancient Greek orators. There's logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos being the logical argument. A great example of that um, is Jordan Peterson. He's very logos. There are many, many uh, conservative thinkers like Ben Shapiro. If you look at uh, their mic drops on YouTube, it's all like logos. Like they're basically making their opponents look foolish by using really well-crafted logical arguments. There's pathos people, pathos being uh, emotion, path uh, as in like empathy. a great uh, male example of masculine pathos would be someone like David Goggins. Like he gets people fired up, right? He's not making this like a very thoughtful, logical argument. He's just like, I, I, this is what you do, like this, whatever, right? He gets people stirred up. Like uh, the football coach who gives the really good speech that gets everyone like riled up. That's a pathos argument. <clears throat> but then ethos is character. And ethos is character is like kind of the hardest thing to pin down because it's not character isn't something you do. In, in one action, like you don't do character, like you don't, uh, in the way you make a logical argument or you make an emotional appeal. Character is like who you are. And um, <clears throat> I, I was, uh, I heard this theory, actually I'm gonna say that for another time, but I'm a huge Joe Rogan fan. And uh, there's a lot of, and many people are, like he's, he's the most popular podcaster ever. And I've seen a lot of people who maybe don't totally get Joe Rogan or look at him like, why is he so popular? He seems like a regular guy, or he seems like, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he's not, he doesn't have like the super deep uh, questions that Tim Ferriss has. He's not a, he's not a professional journalist. Um, yeah, he's entertaining, but it's not like he's making jokes nonstop or like running sets on his, uh, on his podcast. Like, what is it about Joe Rogan that makes him so appealing for so many people to listen to him? And I've seen uh, th- like analyses on YouTube of like, oh, he does this and he does that. He's using this technique. And, I don't, and not, I don't think any of those are true. The reason why Joe Rogan is so popular and why his interviews are so different than every other person, like if you look at, listen to any of his interviews with like famous people who are also on many other shows, their interviews on Joe Rogan are different. Like they're particularly vulnerable. They're particularly real. And the reason is Joe Rogan is one of the few interviewers that all of his guests respect back. 
right? Like a lot of times, like some of like there's, he has really interesting guests, obviously, who are many on many other shows, but they're looking up to him. So they open up in a way to him that they don't open up to, uh, you know, a news journalist because they respect his ethos so deeply because of who he is, of what he does in his life that have nothing to do with the interview. Like he can just be talking or he can just be listening, but because who he is, his ethos of like the things is like the things he actually stands by, the things he does with his life. That gets so much respect from other people. I mean, the fact that he's famous is part of it. But there's many famous, like, you know, people don't speak the same way to Larry King. Larry King is also famous. And Larry King is also an extremely skilled, you know, uh, journalist who, has, who asks deep questions. Or Charlie Rose. Like, people don't speak to Charlie Rose the way they speak to Joe Rogan. Because Joe Rogan isn't an interviewer when you sit across from Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is someone that they look up to. You even see MMA fighters all look up to Joe Rogan. So they, they open up in a way that they don't open up to anyone else because... They, they fully respect him. And like that's, that is ethos. All right. So I'm going to close with men's groups because, um, you know, especially with uh, the COVID lockdown world we're in, a lot of people are starving for social interaction or recognizing that they want real deep social interaction. And when it comes to these tribal virtues of steel sharpening steel and like uh, accessing certain elements of yourself that you don't get to access otherwise, men's groups are a great way to do this because, you know, in, in travel society, in, in modern uh, larger than Dunbar's number organizations of people, men's groups don't naturally form, right? Unless you're on a sports team, which is a, one of the traditional ways people bond, um, or military or fraternity, uh, any of these things that are kind of more, I mean, men's groups are, are one of the more um, uh, necessary things because, I mean, it's true that men's groups are necessary because of the fact that society has become so unmasculine. Um, so they are kind of an artificial way of reconnecting to instinctual things in the same way of like, uh, I'm, I've been following a lot of uh, sleep hacking stuff. I'm going to have a sleep hacker on uh, the show in, in next month. And a lot, of the, a lot of the sleep tips she offers are basically how can you behave the way our Paleolithic ancestors did, which is like the Paleo diet, a lot of things like we're, we've evolved for a certain lifestyle and anything different than that kind of like messes with our our emotions or our sleep or our ability to be healthy. And men's groups are one of these things because naturally back when we actually had to hunt, the men's group was when a guy, guys were out on a hunt and they, you know, the sun went down and they sat around the campfire. That was a men's group. That's where they traded stories and were vulnerable and made jokes about each other. And like that was a natural part of male life or like, you know, a war party or, or anything, any of these things or like a, a group of guys building teepees or, or wigwams like that, that naturally happened. And that's uh, kind of missing in today's society for most guys in the same way that video games are the closest thing to adventure for accessible to most young men. Um, you know, shit talking to each other while you play. I don't know. I don't even know what games are popular these days. Uh, you know, on the internet, that's like sometimes the closest thing uh, to, to connection. But men's groups uh, are a more focused version of that, an opportunity for masculine vulnerability. Because as we mentioned, the difference between the self-help brand of vulnerability, everyone says like, "Oh, be soft." And that's important, right? We can talk about the softer side, the oxytocin side next week. But like. There's an aspect of male bonding that can only happen through challenge and, and ragging on each other and like doing hard things and doing an activity together. I'll say like, uh, this is the first time in my life, especially since I was in a cult, where I really have found a community that I love. And part of that is that I'm around a bunch of guys who I really like and respect. Um, and you know, uh, we've, we, we don't call them men's groups, but like we, we go, we've gone on trips together and you can really shoot the shit because when there are no women around, kind of like with the example I opened the, this, this episode with, with the, the two-year-old kid who straightened up and sat down when he saw me, um, guys act differently around guys. When there's, no, when there's a woman around, even if there's one woman, all the attention kind of goes there and all behavior kind of modifies. It's not that every guy wants to get with a girl that can happen. It's like every guy wants to be seen a certain way by the girls. So like certain jokes are omitted, um, certain behaviors are lost. Like guys are not so mean to each other. And I mean, mean, not necessarily in a bad way um, because like that edge is kind of necessary for real vulnerability between men. When there's an all male environment, you actually get to, I mean, I was going to say let your hair down, which is probably the opposite uh, analogy, um, but you get to actually express certain things that you wouldn't express in a, in a mixed group. Um, so other reasons, and the reason why I posted this thing last year about how to start men's groups, why to start men's groups are, one is opportunity, I mean, specifically starting your own men's group, I mean, you might find, be able to find one, or maybe, you're, maybe your social circle of guys already is exactly this, but sometimes it's hard to find, especially in this world where we get to choose, we have unlimited choice of where to socialize and how to meet people. Starting your own thing makes it be like, okay, this is the thing I want to experience. 
guys who also want to experience that can meet me. Um, so like I, I just had a, one of my clients, uh, he's into adventure stuff, he's into stoicism. He created a meetup group called the Stoic, uh, I think it's called the Stoics Action Club or something like that. Just a way to attract guys that uh, want to talk about the stuff that he wants to talk about, who want to do the cold plunges or nature walks that he wants to talk about. It's the most recent, but I've had, I've had a lot of clients and students start their own men's groups and find like-minded guys if they describe it the right way. So uh, it's also an opportunity, especially if you are trying to access your own ability to be a leader. This is more of the king archetype stuff. Simply, I mean, I, I quote Omar Pani on this a lot of times, uh, responsibility creates power. Like people always say the quote backwards, like with great power comes great responsibility. But if you actually take more responsibility, especially for other people, it gives you a sense of power when people defer to you. Because we talk about dominance and submission on a regular social level, on a cooperative social level, where you're not like domineering people. But like very, the, the dominant person in a group is the person that other people trust to make decisions for them, right? Like if you're going on a group with a bunch of your buddies and you're the one booking the hotel or the logistics and people are like, yeah, I trust you to book the logistics. They've best essentially in that moment submitted to you in a, in a cooperative way, right? And it gives you a sense of power that, that bolsters self-esteem, like the real kind of self-esteem, not just the, the, you know, the padded participation trophy. And because like on a tribal level, real leadership is service, right? In our, in our giant tribe worlds, leadership can turn into tyranny because of, uh, well, all the artificial forces that I mentioned earlier. And also I will say like a lot of guys uh, who want to become coaches reach out to me. Starting a men's group is the absolute best way because you don't have to charge money. It's an opportunity that you get to be around a lot of guys. You get a lot of experience hearing real vulnerable stories. And um, I personally developed my competence as a coach running men's groups, right? I was just a facilitator. I'm going I'm to uh, speak about my breakdown of men's groups in a second. But like I developed my competence and confidence running men's groups because one, I, I, was, I learned how to like sit in tension with a lot of people, a lot of men. I got to hear a lot of uh, stories. So I got to like understand the male psyche more, not just my own brain. Uh, I also recognize things about myself, but also just facilitating a group of a bunch of guys talking, even if I'm not necessarily coaching anyone or guiding people, just that gave me a sense of confidence of like, oh, I know how to guide people's minds. And when you do that with like 10 or 12 people all at once, even if it's not particularly deep into every individual person, just being able to follow the thread of thought is so critical. I mean, that in itself is a masculine virtue. So I'm going to end with the last couple minutes here of how I run my, my own men's groups um, because... <clears throat> I'm not going to go on a whole rant on this, but a lot of things I've seen, especially in like the hippie side of uh, personal development, they're so effeminate. And you have like these these uh, men's, like their so-called men's groups run by a super effeminate guy. And I have nothing against like guys who want to express themselves in a feminine way. I think that's great at times. But if you're running a group that advertises itself for helping people get into their masculine and you're not upholding masculine virtues, you're not being grounded, you're not like holding people to accountable to things... Um, you're, you're only perpetuating uh, the atrophy of masculinity and it makes me real mad. Like I hate like these talking circles. Like that's great for women's groups. Like women need that where they just share and listen, but like men need something a little stronger. Anyway, this is, this is my own personal opinion on how men's groups should be run. Should be run. The way I always started is, uh, uh, I always, you know, I, I just, I advertise what the thing is so it attracts the right kind of guys, not guys who just want a circle jerk. I always give an intro of the structure making it very clear what the things are. And I'm pretty strict on time. Um, for every section, there's like a hard start, start and stop time. If someone's in the middle of a thought, I might, I might uh, you know, give them a pass. You don't have to be an asshole if someone's really opening up. But it's also a skill for every guy in the group to learn how to uh, make their, their thoughts concise enough and express themselves directly as opposed to just blabbing out. So give a clear structure of the, the time. Um, and then we start with shares, which uh, simply is every guy sharing what they want to talk about, what's going on for them. They might have a minute, they might have a minute and a half, they might have two minutes, but I actually hold the time and I show the time so like every guy can keep themselves accountable of not just uh, you know blabbing out into the universe and getting super watery, but being precise of like, this is the thing that's going on for me. And, and, and when a guy goes to their first men's group, they might be bad at talking about themselves. They might have nothing to say, or they might talk about a bunch of things that aren't really the thing. But every time if you hold them accountable to that, it gives them an opportunity to practice being precise. Um, which is a skill in itself for a guy who's like very scatterbrained. That's probably the thing he needs more than anything else. You're giving, you're doing them a service, even if they, you cut them off at a certain time. And you enter open discussion, open discussion. Um, even in open discussion, as the facilitator, 
I'm not choosing what we talk about, but through the, through the shares, I try to pick out the common threads because if you have 10 guys in a group and you're only going to speak for 45 minutes or, or, or even an hour and a half, which is like the, the longest I would let open discussion go, um, you can't talk about everyone's individual story and not everyone wants to talk about their individual story, but you, it will become obvious in a group of 10 or whatever guys, certain guys have something potent or like a bunch of people have common threads. So after a bunch of share, after everyone shares, including myself, I feel the facilitator's role is to call out the common threads. It's like, okay, we got people talking about women. We got people talking about purpose. I mean, these are the super general things. You might see more specific things like there's something going on with like competitiveness or jealousy, or maybe two guys in the group have a conflict and that is something that can be talked about. Like all of these are opportunities for realness. Um, and like anything, any opportunity, like if I were to look at, because when we talk about the lover archetype and connecting to the feminine, I would say all of that world is an opportunity, whether it's approaching a woman or, uh, or anything, or your own feminine side, it's an opportunity for vulnerability, which is important. When it comes to male-male connection, it's an opportunity to handle tension, which is its own kind of vulnerability. Like, like the, most, the most vulnerable thing I think that two men can do is have a real fight where they're recognizing each other, right? Um, in that conflict, you get to really see, because there's, there's so much vulnerability in, in, in uh in competition, um, so any opportunity. So I'm, when I when we look at all the the threads, the potential discussion topics to start with, I'm looking. I mean, you could call it following the sensation. I'm looking for where is the opportunity for us to ground the most tension. Right? It's not about intellectualizing theories. I mean, I, I always invite guys to ask for advice if they want it. But like when we float up into the abstract that almost never is useful as far as the group. Because we all can go on forums and look up ideas and, and feel advice there or like theorize about stuff over there. The thing that makes men's groups most effective is like we can talk about real stuff. The content might be super important, but it's the opportunity to ground tension with other people because that was what really develops the sense of connection and male bonding that bolsters our self-esteem that when we leave the men's group and go out into the world, whether it's with our girlfriends or at work or chasing you know, the business opportunity or the other hard thing, that's what actually gives us the backbone to recognize like, oh, I have all this practice grounding tension with guys I respect. I can handle a lot of other things. And like that's, that's the point of the campfire discussion. Um, yeah, so open discussion. I do invite people to ask for advice. And sometimes you got to zero in on a person who like really needs help or really needs something to express because very often, unless it's a, a super obscure topic, um, one like a bunch of guys offering their thoughts or advice or uh, whatever thing to help one person very often helps everyone else. In a small group, if it's five people or less, we might focus on each person individually. But uh, you know, more than six or seven, you kind of have to leave things general, um, or not general, but rather focus on a, a few core threads that apply to a lot of people. Um, that that because very often, if you know, if someone's discussing about a topic that's relevant to you, just whatever um, whatever movement or unpacking that guy experiences can also work for everyone else, right? That's that's part of. Uh, as part of the classroom effect. Um, but I always end with future commitments because uh, testosterone uh, thrives on commitment and uh, accomplishment. So at the end of every group, whether it's a weekly group or a monthly group or even a group, you know, I haven't, I haven't had a regular men's group in a long time, but even with my buddies when we go away, like we set some sort of commitment, that kind of commitment is effective, right? You keep each other accountable, uh, but not, it's not just about the accountability, it's about like the opportunity to keep your word with an audience of people you respect. Um, so I, I, you know, when I see these men's groups that meet every week and they talk about their goals, their intentions, but they never actually do it, I'm just like, you're, 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 it's, not, it's, it's not just that you're missing out on opportunity, you're actually making things worse. You're actually making everyone a little bit less good at being a man by making these so-called intentions and then not actually following through. Um, the, the, you're, you're kind of wasting the whole point of meeting up for an hour or two hours uh, if, you, if you don't actually hold to the commitments or even keep or mention the commitments. And then finally, I end with uh, something. I mean, it's, it might sound like a, it's, maybe it's not the right, the best uh, title for something, but it's called Intimacies. I learned this, I actually learned this at the cults. I think it's a very effective communication tool <clears throat> where after everyone makes their commitments, every guy has one last um, opportunity to say a direct communication to another guy in the group. And this is this is an opportunity for real vulnerability because like a really real vulnerability because you know we, we had the shares 
we had the open discussion, which maybe was intellectual, maybe it wasn't, whatever, but we've gotten to know each other a little bit, right? Whether it's a regular meeting group or just this one time. And the intimacy section is an opportunity where each guy gets to say something about what they really feel about someone else. And it might be airing a judgment that they had. It's like, oh yeah, I thought you were a huge dick until you shared that thing and I realized like you actually uh, remind me of something that I want to access to myself so I was a little jealous. Like these kind of things, right? It could be a compliment. It could be like, I think you're a fucking piece of shit. All of these opportunities, again, if you, if you think of like the, the goal of the men's group in every moment, and I think it's important as a facilitator, is to seek real tension in order to ground it. Not tension for the sake of stirring like, stuff up for just the sake of it. Uh, I don't want people to get into fist fights. That, that's not necessarily useful. But to, to have an opportunity to ground tension, that is real masculine vulnerability. And um, yeah, these intimacies are an opportunity because if you guys have spoken for an hour plus, you can say stuff that is really real and potent to each other that whether it's hard, uh, whether it's positive or negative, if it's real, it is useful and it will create respect between people, even if you're saying the hard truth between people. Assuming that everyone has upheld the virtue of honor where like, you can actually trust each other to handle shit or to take the truth or, or be open to discussing stuff and have a real reaction. Um, I think it's very freeing. And uh, then you close and then do whatever you do afterwards. So these are all my thoughts on, on that. Uh, and with last announcements on Thursday, we have the BJJ Globetrotter, Christian Graugut on the podcast. Um, we had a great discussion on the us versus them paradigm. Um, and um, uh, yeah, and jujitsu and travel. It's a very, he's a very interesting dude. Um, hopefully we'll have Jack Donovan on soon and just got in touch with him, um, speaking more about topics related to this. He wrote the book, The Way of Men. I think he's a very interesting guy. Um, and then uh, other things are coming up that I can't uh, announce, so I'm not gonna announce them. All right, thanks for listening. Peace.